This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. For more information, visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Join us now as Pastor Adam Camp teaches the first of a two-part series titled Deacon, Servant, Leader. I hope you were blessed last weekend by Dr. Robert Plummer. Came from Southern Seminary and taught us. I had two comments from just scores of people all through this last week. Comment number one, we really enjoyed his teaching. He was clear and concise and he did a really good job teaching and we really liked listening to him. and He was very helpful. And comment number two, man was he young. (laughs) That's what I heard from everybody. Man was he young. He is young. He's about 40 years old. Got his PhD when he was 30 been teaching seminary for 10 years. He's just a brilliant man. I just think it's a, it's a privilege for our church to be able to sit under somebody like that and learn and understand and, and, and comprehend the Word of God more from somebody like that. I have a real desire and a vision for, do, for doing that more often in our church. So you be in prayer that God would continue to allow us to do that. So for the last four weeks, the month of January, we've spent some real time studying the history of the Bible. We've answered questions like, who wrote the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? How do we know the Bible is the same today as it was in the first century? How was the Bible passed down from all those generations to what we have today? And I think we've made the case through our study in Scripture and through some study of history that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. We said that it's all we need, it's sufficient in our lives to help us understand how to live for Christ and how to bring Him honor and glory. Now I want to take a step forward this morning. If the Bible is the inspired and errant, authoritative Word of God in our lives, which it is, then isn't it logical to conclude that the next step for us is that the Bible needs to be the inspired and errant, authoritative Word of God in the way we decide things at church, right? I mean, if the Bible's our authority in our personal lives, shouldn't we also say that the Bible is the authority in the way we decide things at church? And so even though I've finished this series on the history of the Bible in the month of January, I'm going to continue for the next several months reminding us of the importance of the Word of God. And I'm going to do several sermon series over the next several months that relate to this idea of the Word of God in our lives. And we're going to look at some real specific things that are taught in Scripture about certain areas of our life. So in a few weeks, I'm going to talk about the Bible and what it says about the family. I've been talking about this sermon series for several months now. I've been talking about this family ministry plan that we're trying to work through as a staff. We've been working on for several months. So I'm going to preach on what the Bible says about the family here in a few weeks. After Easter, I'm going to spend some real time preaching on what the Bible says about the church. There are multiple passages in Scripture that give us models that help us to understand exactly how we ought to be making decisions as a church based on the inspired and errant authoritative Word of God. And so with that thought in mind, for the next couple of weeks... I'm going to preach on what the Bible says about deacons. Now, we had the opportunity as a group of deacons back before Christmas to take a deacon retreat. It's a fantastic weekend. We went to Shaco Springs for a couple days for one night. We spent some real time at that deacon's retreat praying. And we spent some real time studying the Word of God to figure out what the Bible says about deacons. Right? I mean, if the Bible's the authoritative Word of God in our lives... 
If the Bible's the authoritative word of God in the church and helps us make decisions about how we should act, then the Bible should be the authoritative word of God in our deacon ministry. What does the Bible say about our deacons? And so within that retreat, within the time of that retreat, we decided and, and, and prayed through a deacon covenant. And we talked about what a deacon covenant would look like and some of the things that would be included in a deacon covenant. We took a look at two major passages of Scripture that talk about the deacons. I'm going to preach on one of those passages this morning. I'm going to preach about the other passage next Sunday. And then I'm very excited to tell you that next Sunday morning, our deacons are going to sign in front of the entire church the deacon covenant. I'm really excited about that for several reasons. Number one, I'm excited about it because it's going to kind of set a standard for our deacons of things they should follow. Now, we, we, we were real clear with the deacons to say this. Don't sign this thing if you don't mean it. Okay? Don't sign it if you don't want to be held accountable for the things that are listed in this deacon covenant. But I'm equally as excited about this deacon covenant because it's based clearly and specifically on the Word of God. We literally sat there as a group of deacons and studied through Acts chapter 6, which we're going to look at this morning, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, which we're going to study next week, and we tried to figure out, based on those scriptures, what kinds of things should be included in a deacon covenant. Now, we're going to make a big deal about this next week. We're not going to sign up behind closed doors and put it in a drawer somewhere. We're going to sign it right here on the platform in front of everybody as a covenant from the deacons of this church to the people of this church that the deacons are going to live and act in a certain way based on the teachings of Scripture. So I want you to pray about that. I want you to look forward to that. I want you to be prepared for that next Sunday morning as we sign this deacon covenant. So having said all that, let's turn our attention this morning to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Now there are two major passages of Scripture that talk about deacons. One of them is Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at that this morning. The other is 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to study that next week. But as you're turning to Acts chapter 6, let me give you a little bit of background on the book of Acts. The book of Acts is written by Luke. And it's very simply the story of the early church. If you want a summary of the book of Acts, here it is. It's the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the early church. And so we understand by studying through the book of Acts how the early church was formed, how the early church functioned, and even more importantly, how the early church grew. So if you've got your Bibles open to Acts chapter 6, flip back to Acts chapter 1 just for a minute. I want to walk you through a few passages Leading up to Acts chapter 6 will put us in context of where we're going to be this morning as we study about what the Bible teaches about deacons. Acts chapter 1 verse 15. Now I want to make the case that the early church, when Christ was crucified, he died, was buried, he rose from the dead three days later and ascended into heaven. When that happened, the early church, the body of believers that existed in the world, was a small, scared little group of people. Okay? Now look at Acts chapter 1 verse 15. <clears throat> in those days... Peter stood up among the believers. This is a group numbering about 120. See that? So our baseline number for the believers when Christ ascended into heaven after Pentecost is 120, well, actually before Pentecost in Acts chapter 1. 120 believers. That's a small little group of people. There are way more people at Rosemont than there were believers in the world in the early church. You understand that, okay? Now, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Flip over just a few pages. We begin with 120. We move now to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received the word, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 41, those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You see that? 
So we go from a small little scared group of 120, now we're at 3,000. Look over a couple of verses in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Okay, so we, we get this picture now. Small little group of people, the Lord increases. And by the way, if you've got your Bibles, I, for me, when I study Scripture, it's helpful for me. Parts of Scripture that kind of walk through a progression, I usually circle them because I, I can go back and I can read Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 2, Acts 4, and I can see the progression of the growth in the early church. So if you've got your Bibles, just circle those verses. It'll help you remember and begin to see the progression. Flip over now to Acts chapter 4. So we've gone from 120 to 3,000 to a group now that's continually being added to the numbers. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about, how many? 5,000. Isn't that interesting? 120, 3,000. The number grows. 5,000. And now look at Acts chapter 5, verse 14. This will lead us right up to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 5, verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. See that? So when we arrive on the scene at Acts chapter 6, in the context of the Scripture, we understand that the early church has experienced an incredible period of growth. Now that's going to make a lot of sense to us when we delve into the passage of Scripture this morning and see Acts chapter 6, verse 1. So if you've got your Bibles and you're looking with us, take a look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And I think we have this passage of Scripture on the screen as well. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Understanding what we just studied about the growth of the church. Look at how Luke begins Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing. You see that? There's this sense here that the early church is growing. So... When the early number, when the disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now verse 2. So, the twelve, that's the original apostles, gathered all the disciples together. Now all the disciples together right there means all the believers. The apostles were the original twelve. The disciples in this context mean the, the other believers, the Christians that existed at that time. They gathered them together and they said... It would not be right for us, and that us right there is the apostles, it would not be right for the apostles to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Okay, so verse 3. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. This is the first calling of the original deacons. If you're making notes in your Bible, you can make a note of that. This is the calling of the original deacons, the first seven. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Now, Acts chapter 6, verse 4. And we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, we're going to stop there for a few minutes. We'll delve on through some of these other passages of Scripture in just a few minutes. But there's some very important things we need to understand from Acts chapter 6. If we're going to say the Bible is the inspired and errant authoritative Word of God in our lives, then it needs to be the inspired and errant authoritative Word in the life of our church and it needs to govern not only how our church functions, but it ought to govern how our deacons function. And so we're going to spend some time this morning delving into some of the things that God gives us in Acts chapter 6 to explain exactly what these deacons were called to do. And the first thing I want you to understand very clearly throughout this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 6, the deacons were, number one, called to serve. The first thing we notice about this passage of Scripture is that the deacons, first and foremost, were called to serve serve. Now look again at Acts chapter 6 verse 1. I'm going to read it to you. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, 
The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, here's an interesting thing about church growth. As churches grow, there's certainly a sense of excitement and, and great things are happening and God is blessing. But at the same time that growth occurs, there's an opportunity for problems, right? We see this in churches in our day. We saw it, see it in the churches in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 6 and in the early church all through the book of Acts. Luke says to us, the number of people are increasing, the disciples are growing, our church is reaching people for Christ, and yet even in the midst of that growth, in the midst of that excitement, there's a problem. Now it's interesting to me as I think back some of the churches I've been affiliated with, and some of you probably could tell the same sorts of stories. How many of us know a church, or have heard of a church, or have been involved in a church that was doing some really great things for Christ, and all of a sudden the devil found a foothold in somebody's life or in some area of that church and split the church? We know those stories, don't we? How many of us know the stories of churches that have done incredible things for God and, and neat things were happening and God's hand was at work and the devil got involved some way in the midst of that church and destroyed that church? I bet if I went around the room and asked every person, we could all give at least one example of a church we know like that. It was the same in the first century. With growth came problems. Now here's the thing we need to understand about this passage of Scripture. It clearly teaches about the deacons, and it clearly teaches about the needs of deacons to serve, and I'm going to talk about that in depth, but there's kind of a little sidebar here. I think the sidebar is this. When your church is growing and reaching people for Christ, be careful. Because the devil's going to attack. You understand that? Now, as I sit back and I look at Rosemont Baptist Church and what God has done in our church over the last 40 plus years and what He's doing today and how God is growing our church and how <clears throat> we're reaching people for Christ and our name is known in the community as, as a godly group of people that loves the Lord. As I see what God is doing in our church and I see the growth and excitement, I'm scared a little bit because I know the devil's going to kind of redouble his efforts to attack us, isn't he? And so we need to be prepared, all of us, as a pastor, as the staff, as the deacons, as the Sunday school teachers, as any kind of a volunteer, as any kind of a layperson, we need to be in prayer. And we need to guard against these attacks of the devil. Because just in the first century church as it is today, when the church is growing, problems arise. Now Luke gives us a real specific example of these problems in Luke chapter 1. He says there's two groups of people. There's the Hellenistic Jews that are widows, and there's the Hebraic Jews that are also widows. Now, we could divide these two groups very simply by languages. Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek. Hebraic Jews spoke Aramaic. And there's a problem that arises between these two people simply because their widows are not being provided with the food that they need. Now, you need to understand something about service in the first century. If you lived in the first century, this idea of providing for the needs of widows would have been a big deal to you. It would have been a big deal to you for two reasons. Number one, and primarily, it's taught in Scripture. James 1.27 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. You ready for what pure religion is? To look after orphans and widows. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? The early church understood the importance scripturally of looking after these orphans and widows. But there's a second reason that the early church would have been real concerned about these widows and orphans. Because if they didn't take care of these widows, if they didn't help these people find food, there was a real chance that these women would have died. See, in the first century, there were, there were no subsidies, there were no government programs, there were no groups of people that gave large amounts of money, there were no food closets, there were no food pantries, there was no place for these people to go and get food. What would happen ultimately to these women if churches didn't help them, or if somebody didn't take them into their home, is they would become beggars. 
They would beg on the street for money. They would beg on the street for anything they could have and anything they could find. If they didn't get enough in begging, chances are they would have died. And so the, 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 the book of Acts, as we think through and, and, and talk through these, these problems within the initial church, within the early church, the first problem we see here between these groups is the idea of feeding these widows. And the apostles say, we need somebody to help with this problem. We're growing. We're reaching people for Jesus Christ. Things are happening with our church, but there's a problem that needs to be solved. And so these original apostles go and they say to the people, we need to pick somebody to serve and to help us fix this problem. Now, if you were to go back and study the original Greek, and one of the interesting things I talked about last week with Dr. Plummer is his, his knowledge of Greek. I've sat in class with him before, and he pulls out his Greek New Testament. It's written in all, all in Greek. And he literally is flipping through and reading passages of Scripture from the Greek, translating on the fly in English. It's pretty phenomenal. It's amazing. These guys that understand the languages and are that good at it. But if you were to study the original Greek, the word deacon actually means servant. If you were to translate from the original Greek, the word deacon actually means servant. And so we see here in this passage of Scripture that these deacons were certainly called to serve and to help those people in need, but there's something else we understand about these deacons. They brought unity, didn't they? If these deacons hadn't stepped in, if they hadn't been involved in this early church, if they hadn't been involved in this dispute between these two groups of widows, there would have been discord and disunity within the church. So through their service and through their desire to serve, they brought unity. Now, some of you are probably thinking, and I'll go ahead and answer this question and clear this up. Some of you are probably thinking, I thought the deacons were called to make the decisions, like a deacon board. I grew up in a church, and we had a deacon board, and they voted on everything, and they, they made these kinds of decisions, and they did certain things, and, and they were the ones that called the church to do this, and they were the ones that called the church to do that. Now, if you're confused a little bit, or you're a little bit upset at what I'm saying, I want to use the Bible as my defense, Okay? <laughs> I'm not saying any of these things. I'm simply telling you what the Scripture teaches. Now, we can't make decisions moving forward based on the way we've always done it. We can't make decisions moving forward based on the way other people have always done it. If we're going to be faithful to the Word of God and to His teachings, which we will be, then we've got to move forward based on what the Scripture teaches now you say, well, I thought the deacons were supposed to be leaders. They are. They're absolutely supposed to be leaders. And the way that they're to lead primarily in this passage of Scripture is through their service. Now I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 4. We spent some real time studying through the book of Ephesians. And I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12. I want to read those to you again just to remind you of what we learned in that study. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see, the deacons are called to serve and they're called to lead our church by serving and by involving other people in service. Just imagine this for just a second. There are at least 5,000 people in the early church. We've made that point in Scripture already. We can estimate that probably by the time this was written, there were more than just 5,000. You can imagine in five, six, eight, ten thousand people, the number of widows that must have been a part of the church. It stands to reason that these seven deacons, the original seven deacons, could not have provided for all these widows by themselves. It would have been impossible. So what would they have done? 
They would have gone to the church and they would have said, we need your help. We're going to step up and lead this ministry to help these people. We're going to step up and provide for these widows, but we can't do it without you. We're called to serve and we're going to lead you by serving. So the thing we understand, first of all, primarily from the scriptures, from the teachings of Acts chapter 6, is that deacons are called to serve. Look at verse 2 again as we move through this passage. So the twelve gather all the disciples together, and they said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, now here it is, choose seven men from among you. How are we going to know how to choose them? Who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. Not only are deacons called to lead in service and to be servants within the church, deacons are also called to be spiritual leaders. Deacons are called to serve. Deacons are also called to be spiritual leaders. Look at verse 3 again. Brothers and sisters, choose seven from among you who are known to be full of what? Spirit and wisdom. How are these men chosen? They were chosen because they were known to be, not we're going to guess, not we think we know, not we hope we know, not we think one day they will be, but we know that they are full of wisdom and the Spirit of God. Now, there are a couple of things I want you to understand from this passage of Scripture. Number one, I want you to see within this text the importance of the entire church in the process of choosing the deacons. So the twelve, those are the apostles, gathered who? All of the disciples together. They gathered the church together. And they said, look, we've got a problem here. We need to solve it. You need to pick these people. You need to find these men who are known to be full of the Spirit of God and known to be full of wisdom, and you need to elect them as your deacons. That's why for, for, for the entire history of Rosemont and the way we're going to continue in the future, the body of believers has been involved in choosing the deacons for this church. Why do we do that? Because it's biblical. <laughs> There are a lot of other ways of doing that. But the Bible very clearly teaches that the original twelve went to the church and said, you have got to choose from among the people of this church the men that are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. Those are the men that will become deacons. But the second thing we notice in this passage of Scripture is that these men were chosen simply because they were spiritually mature. Now let me explain to you what Acts chapter 6 does not say. Acts chapter 6 does not say these men were chosen because of their ability in business. That's not what it says. It doesn't say they were chosen because of their wealth. That's not what it says. It doesn't say they were chosen because of their status in society. That's not what Acts chapter 6 says. It doesn't say they were chosen because of their intelligence. That's not what it says. And yet I wonder how many churches over the centuries have chosen leadership and deacons because we know he's a businessman in town and a leader in the community and we need him as a deacon. Now those things are great and we want men like that, but that's not ultimately the way we choose. We don't pick somebody because they're rich. We don't pick somebody because they're smart. We don't pick somebody because everybody loves them and they're a famous person in the community. We pick them because we know that they are leaders within our church. I was doing some reading this week on what real leadership is and what a real man of God looks like. And I found a definition of kind of what the world would say a real man looks like. I thought this was funny. I'm going to read it to you. Real men hunt and fish. Real men like football. Real men watch ultimate fighting. 
Real men love Braveheart. Real men change the oil and chop firewood. Now, I personally like some of those things. I can find myself in a few of those categories. But I want to submit this to you. The men of God that we need to lead our church are not men that necessarily like football or men that necessarily hunt or men that necessarily like to change the oil and chop firewood. We don't need to go to the world for our definition of what a real man of God looks like. Instead, what we ought to do is go to the Scripture and understand what a real spiritual leader, what a real man of God looks like. I would argue that a real man is a man who will lead his church and will lead his family toward the things of Christ. That's what a spiritual leader is. Those are the kind of men that we need in our church. We don't need men who will sit back and let their wives lead. We don't need men who will sit back and let somebody else do it. We don't need men who will cower and not stand up for the things of God. We need men, as in the first century church, who are spiritual leaders. And when we recognize those men, we should make them deacons in our church. If I read the name Cleet Sipes, other than Amy, does anybody here know the name Cleet Sipes? You, you guys probably know him, yeah. Cleet was the campus minister at, at Auburn University for 19 years. I had the opportunity of meeting him on a couple of occasions. I never had the opportunity to, to, to learn under him. But Cleet, by all accounts, was an amazing man. Cleet's stated goal in life. You ready for this? You think about what your stated goal in life would be. Here was Cleet's. I want to reach a million people for Christ before I die. That's what he said. That was his goal. Now, when you think about that goal, you probably initially laugh. Oh, that's impossible. And even if he were going to do that, how would he do it? Well, if he were going to reach a million people for Christ in his lifetime, he would have to do it by talking to large groups of people, wouldn't he? I mean, maybe he's going to go to these big coliseums. Maybe he's going to fill up these sports stadiums. Maybe he's going to talk to thousands and thousands of people at a time. And over the course of you know, a number of years of ministry, eventually he'll reach a million people. That wasn't Cleet's model. Cleet didn't listen to the ways of the world. Cleet had a very simple model for me reaching a million people. One person at a time. Hmm. So when Amy went to Auburn University and got involved in the BCM, the Baptist Campus Ministry down there, the first thing she was required to do by Cleet is to get into a discipleship group. Now here was Cleet's model. You go with two other girls for one year through Master Life. You guys work together weekly, you pray together, you spend time together, and there was one leader, and that leader discipled these two young freshman girls. There was just one rule. When you finished, you had to disciple somebody else. That was a rule. So you go through it for a year. After you're finished, you become a leader, and you disciple two other people. Now you start doing the math. One becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight becomes 16. You can imagine how that would continue as the years and years progressed. It's amazing to me, every time Amy and I have a conversation about somebody she went to school with that was in the BCM, she usually makes a comment like this. Yeah, yeah, that person is in ministry. Yeah, that person became a pastor. I'd forgotten about that. Or we get these things in the mail from some of her friends, these missionaries in Southeast Asia. Yeah, that person became a missionary. Or yeah, that person's a children's pastor at this church. Or yeah, this person does discipleship work in, in his local church. Cleet died eight years ago. And I googled his name last night just for fun, and I found all sorts of blogs that still talk about his influence on people's lives. I want you to listen to one of them. This is amazing. 
Think about his stated goal of reaching a million people. Here's what one person said about Cleet Sipes. If you invest in two lives a year, remember that was his model, and you teach them to do the same, then you could potentially change over a million lives in 20 years. <laughs> Cleet was a student pastor for 19. Not just a little bit, but it's the kind of change that lasts a lifetime. You know, sometimes we look at the models of the world and we think we need to do it like they say we need to do it. And the scripture says, I've got a real clear model here. I need biblical men that will step up and will lead their families and will lead at work and will lead their churches. And when I get those kind of men, we can change the world. But see, here's the problem we run into oftentimes. We get so bogged down with the things of life, don't we, guys? With work and with schedules and with paying the bills and all the things that we have to deal with on a regular basis. And we take that spiritual influence and we set it aside. And when we're finished working and paying the bills and doing all those other sorts of things, then whatever time is left, we say, God, I'm going to give you that. Those are not the spiritual leaders that we talk about in Acts chapter 6. These men were devoted to their families, they were devoted to their church, they were devoted to their wives, they were devoted to the people around them, they were devoted to reaching people for Christ. We need men of God to step up and be spiritual leaders. So the deacons are called to serve, the deacons are called to be spiritual leaders, and then thirdly, take a look again at verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait tables. That's important to understand. Verse 3, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Here's the third thing the deacon is called to do. He's called to serve. He's called to be a spiritual leader. And he was called to allow the apostles to preach the word and pray. He's called to allow the apostles, it should say, to preach the word and pray. Now you could substitute that word apostles for pastors. These deacons were called to allow the pastor to preach the word and to pray. Now these apostles learned something early on in this church growth process. It's a real simple lesson we all need to learn. They understand that as they grew more and more and more and more, that one person couldn't do it all, right? How many churches do we know where the pastor has tried to do everything, has burned out in just a few years and has left the church? We probably all know those types of stories. How many of us know the story of the pastor who's been somewhere for two or three or four years and just couldn't do it anymore and left because the people required so much of that person? Now, you need to understand something. Pastors should be required to to work and to be diligent and to study and do all the things that God's called them to do. But pastors and staff, we can't do it all. We don't want to do it all. It's It's amazing to me in this process of the early church that God understood exactly what was going on with this large ministry of people. And He set in place a mechanism through these deacons that allowed these deacons to protect the apostles to protect them from so many other things that people wanted them to do and allow them to preach the Word of God. I've got a real simple theory, and I want to give it to you. Here's my theory. My theory says that when the Word of God is properly taught and when the people of God respond to that Word, God works and your church will grow. It's a real simple model. 
when the Word of God is properly taught, from the pulpit, from the Sunday school lesson, from the VBS teacher, when the Word of God is properly taught and the people of God respond to that Word, God works and your church grows. John Wesley said this about the early church. I think it's an interesting quote. He says, in the first church, the primary business of the apostles, the evangelists, and the bishops, these are the leaders of the church, was to preach the Word of God. Let me read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5 through 5 to you. Paul writes to a very young Timothy in the ministry. Timothy's surrounded by people in the church and people in the ministry, and there are lots of things that Timothy needs to be doing. There are lots of things that people expect from Timothy. But listen to 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. through 5. Paul says to Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge, Timothy. Now listen to this. Preach the Word. There it is. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, encourage, and with great patience and careful instruction. Verse 3. Now listen to this. See if this sounds familiar. For the time will come, Paul says to Timothy... When men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want them to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth. They will turn aside the myths. But you, Paul says to Timothy, you keep your head in all situations. You endure hardship. You do the work of an evangelist. You discharge all the duties of your ministry. Paul says to Timothy, your job, Timothy, first... And foremost, your primary calling is to preach the Word. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says this, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its laws in Israel. Some of you guys have probably heard of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is probably one of the greatest pastors really in the history of the world. He lived in London in the mid-19th century and he preached in a, in a, in a church in the middle of London And even in the mid-1900s, in the 1850s, Charles Spurgeon preached to 10,000 people on a regular basis. I showed Amy last night a drawing that somebody made. Remember, they didn't take pictures back then. No video, no YouTube, no Facebook. Somebody had hand-drawn a picture of Charles Spurgeon preaching to 10,000 people. And it was just masses of people in this building. Balconies full of people, people all behind Charles Spurgeon teaching, people all sitting in front of where he was, hearing him preach the Word of God. He was known for his clear, his concise preaching. He was known for his conviction of preaching the Word. Now here's what he said. He said it's better to preach five words of God's Word than five million words of man's wisdom. He says men's words may seem to be wiser and the more attractive, but there is no heavenly life in them. Isn't that interesting? Over and over in Scripture, through the course of history, and some of the greatest pastors we've ever seen, they understand their primary calling is to preach the Word. And God built this mechanism in the early church so that the deacons could could attend to the needs and to the ministry needs of the people, so the apostles could free up to pray and to prepare and to preach the Word of God. So we see that deacons are called to serve. We see that deacons are called to be spiritual leaders. We see that deacons are called to to kind of protect the pastor of the apostles so that he can pray and preach the word. Now look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. This is my final point this morning. So, Luke says, (laughs) 
All these things have happened in verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The fourth thing these deacons were called to do, they were called to serve. They were called to be their leaders. They were called to protect the pastor and the apostles. The fourth thing they were called to do is to spread the word of God. That's all of our callings, isn't it? You know, there are all sorts of books on church growth. Did you know that? If you were interested in reading a book on church growth, there's an unlimited number you could read. In fact, if you go to a, to a Christian bookstore, there are usually sections on church growth. There are all sorts of seminars you can go to. There are all sorts of conferences that you can attend. There are all sorts of people that you can listen to that, that have great ideas. And it can be very helpful in the life of your church. But I, I want to submit to you that Acts chapter 6 gives us a real simple formula for church growth. It's apostles who value biblical preaching and deacons who lead in service and are spiritual leaders in the church. Isn't that an interesting model? You say, Adam, is it really that simple? Really? You're telling me if the Word of God is properly taught from the pulpit and from the Sunday school rooms and from the VBS teachers and the children's teachers, if we properly teach the Word of God, and then we have a group of leaders in our church that are willing to serve and provide spiritual guidance and spiritual leadership for our church, you're telling me that if we put those two things together, that's all it's going to take? No, I'm not telling you that. But the Bible is. It's a real clear model. So let's try something for the next little while. Let's do this. I will do my best to preach the Word of God. I'll spend time praying for this church. I'll spend time studying and preparing. I'll encourage our Sunday school teachers to do the same. Let, let's, let's try our best for the next little while to faithfully preach the Word of God. Let's allow our deacons to become the men God has called them to be, to lead us in service, to lead us spiritually to protect the staff and the pastor and the ministries of this church by ministering to those people in need. Let's do those things for the next little while and let's just see where God will take us. See, we try to come up with all these fancy reasons of why we need to do to grow our church and the Bible says there's just a real simple model. Just follow this first. Now next week we're going to sign a deacon covenant. And we're going to do it not because we want to stand up in front of you and sign some paper and we don't want to do it because we want to have some other sort of a ceremony. We're doing it because we want you to understand The deacons and the leadership of this church place a premium importance on the Word of God. And we're doing it because we want to hold each other and want the church to hold us accountable for the things that Scripture teaches about what deacons ought to do. We're going to do it because it's going to set a high standard. It's going to be example for our people to follow. But most of all, maybe most importantly, we're going to sign this deacon covenant because it's going to form a solid foundation that Rosemont is committed to to knowing and doing the will of God as we move forward. Let me pray for us. Thank you for joining us during this podcast. We invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road, LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us again for future podcasts. God bless you.